So just about a year ago, I began leading our family through the Heidelberg Catechism. There may be a few of you here today that think I just spoke a foreign word or two. Heidelberg, a city in Germany, I guess literally is a foreign word. The other word, catechism, is a word that I was not familiar with until about 15 years ago. A catechism is a summary of the principles of Christian religion in the form of question and answers used for the instruction of Christians. Written in 1563, the Heidelberg Catechism is a confession of faith that offers comprehensive instruction in Reformed doctrine and theology. The questions and answers in it are organized in 52 Lord's Days, originally intended to be taught on each Sunday of the year. And that's what me and my family tried to do. We, we, we actually went through it in like 48 weeks because we wanted to have Advent off. Uh, we use a couple, a couple of devotional books to help us through that journey. Um, again, we were edified. It was a great encouragement and blessing to us. Many of you are familiar with the Heidelberg Catechism. Or if you aren't familiar with the entire catechism, you are probably familiar with the first question. And many of you are probably familiar with the answer as well. You're not going to be able to say that or think about that until the end of my sermon. But, it's, but for those unfamiliar, the first question asks, what is your only comfort in life and death? Let me say that again. What is your only comfort in life and death? Our text today will provide an answer. In our text, we'll see a woman in distress. We'll see a woman in need of comfort. We'll see a woman who has placed her hope in finding something. We'll see this woman comforted in a way she does not expect. And we'll see that her comfort is not found in something but someone, Jesus Christ. Here is my sermon in a sentence. Jesus Christ was raised and enthroned, so believe in him for eternal life. It's pretty, pretty simple. Once again, Jesus Christ was raised and enthroned, so believe in him for eternal life. Please follow along as I read the text starting in verse 11. But Mary stood weeping outside the tomb, and as she wept, she stooped to look into the tomb, and she saw two angels in white sitting where the body of Jesus had lain, one at the head and one at the feet. They said to her, Woman, why are you weeping? She said to them, They have taken away my Lord, and I do not know where they have laid him. Having said this, she turned around and saw Jesus standing, but she did not know that it was Jesus. Jesus said to her, Woman, why are you weeping? Whom are you seeking? Supposing him to be the gardener, she said to him, Sir, if you have carried him away, tell me where you have laid him, and I will take him away. Jesus said to her, Mary. She turned and said to him in Aramaic, Rabboni which means teacher. Jesus said to her, Do not cling to me, for I have not yet ascended to the Father. But go to my brothers and say to them, I am ascending to my Father and your Father, to my God and your God. Mary Magdalene went and announced to the disciples, I have seen the Lord, and that he had said these things to her. The grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of our God stands forever. Amen. Let me get some water real quick. 
As we consider the context of Mary and the empty tomb, what we mainly need to know is given by John the Apostle in chapter 20, verses 30 and 31. It says, Now Jesus did many other things in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book. But these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. Everything in John's gospel flows through that filter, that you may believe in Jesus and that you may have life in his name. A quick review of the events that take place just before our text will be helpful as well. After performing many signs and wonders, Jewish leaders want Jesus dead because he has made himself equal to God. After the high priestly prayer in chapter 17, Jesus is arrested, questioned by the high priest, and brought before Pilate in chapter 18. Peter also denies him three times. In chapter 19, Jesus is delivered by Pilate to be crucified. He is crucified between two men. The cross has an inscription that reads, Jesus of Nazareth, King of the Jews. His mother Mary and Mary Magdalene watch as Jesus says he thirst, is given sour wine, and finally gives up his spirit. After the crucifixion of Jesus, his body is taken by Joseph of Arimathea and Nicodemus, wrapped in linen cloths, and laid in a nearby new garden tomb. What do we know about Mary from the Gospels? We know she's a different Mary than Jesus' mother. There's a lot of Marys in the Bible. Uh, She's also different from Mary, the mother of James, and Mary, the wife of Clopas. Mary Magdalene was possessed by demons, but Jesus healed her. She traveled with him as, as he preached. She stuck with him through his trial, and she stood near him as he died. It seems like she had nowhere else to go. On the first day of the week, early in the morning, Mary Magdalene comes to Jesus' tomb and finds the stone used to seal the tomb has been rolled away. She runs to Simon Peter and the disciple whom Jesus loved. She tells them that the Lord Jesus has been taken out of the tomb. She tells them that it is unknown where the body now rests. The two disciples run to the tomb. One looks in the tomb and sees the linen cloths laying in it. He doesn't go in the tomb until Peter arrives and goes in. And they see that the face cloth is folded up away from the other cloths. They now believe that his body is gone, and then they return to their homes. Imagine Mary's surprise and dismay when she sees the stone supposedly sealing the tomb of Jesus rolled away and the Lord's body is gone. And it seems that those who loved him most are unaware of where his body has been taken. Mary is weeping because she doesn't know the location of the body of Jesus. Curious and concerned, she finally stoops to look into the tomb. What does she see? Again, she doesn't see the body of Jesus. But she sees something peculiar, two angels in white sitting where the body of Jesus had lain. It seems that Peter and John did not see them. If they had, you'd think they would have said something to Mary. And they would have made a bigger deal about the missing body. So Mary is certainly surprised to see the two angels in the tomb. And note John's comment on their positioning. One sat at the head where Jesus had lain. The other sat where his feet had lain. The angels had attended to their Lord and King. 
the angels see Mary weeping. In verse 13, they say to her, Woman, why are you weeping? Do they really not know why she is weeping? Are they dense? Are they insensitive? The answer is no to those questions. So does the question serve another purpose? Perhaps Jesus has instructed his servants to insert his servants, the angels, that he will reveal himself to Mary. Perhaps he has instructed them to ask Mary this question. John doesn't provide us an explicit answer. Resuming the narrative, Mary answers the angels. She replies to them saying, They have taken away my Lord, and I do not know where they have laid him. The angels don't respond. Or Mary resumes her search for the Lord before they can respond. In verse 14, John informs us that she turned around and saw Jesus standing, but she did not know that it was Jesus. Why doesn't Mary recognize her Lord, the one she is seeking? Why is she unable to identify the one whose absence is the cause of her weeping? Does Jesus look different from before? Does she think that someone who died can't live again? Hasn't she heard about Lazarus? Maybe her distress has clouded her judgment. Whatever the reason, Mary doesn't know that it is Jesus. And John doesn't tell us why she doesn't know. Jesus then asked Mary the same questions, the question that the angels asked her. Woman, why are you weeping? But he adds another question. He also asked her, whom are you seeking? This is the second time John has included the question asking about Mary's weeping. Why has he done this? What does he want us to see or understand? He is directing the audience to this part of the narrative. John wants us to pay our closest attention at this point. Jesus knows that Mary is searching for him. Jesus will soon reveal himself to Mary. Mary, still not recognizing Jesus, supposes Jesus to be the gardener. She responds to his questions. Sir, if you've carried him away, tell me where you have laid him, and I will take him away. Mary thinks the gardener has taken away the body of her Lord, but Jesus is the gardener. She is now talking to the Lord. She is talking to the one she is seeking. In verse 16, Jesus speaks Mary's name. Hearing this, Mary turns and says to him, Rabbi, just as he had declared in chapter 10, verse 27, his sheep hear his voice. The last time Mary saw Jesus, his body was placed in the new garden tomb by Joseph of Arimathea and Nicodemus. He was dead. Now he is out of the linen cloths. Most importantly, he is alive and well. He is God and he has been raised from the dead just as he had promised. The grave could not hold him. Jesus has conquered death. Finally recognizing the resurrected Jesus, Mary responds to her shepherd, her teacher, her Lord, and she embraces him. Let's read verse 17 again. Jesus said to her, Do not cling to me, for I have not yet ascended to the Father. But go to my brothers and say to them, I am ascending to my Father and your Father, to my God and your God. This seems like a strange reaction from Jesus. Jesus loves Mary. He had healed her. She had traveled with him. 
Mary loves Jesus. She responds to her risen Lord by embracing him, and he tells her to stop. This seems out of character for one who loves others so perfectly. So Jesus tells her why she should not cling to him. I have not yet ascended to the Father. What does he mean by this? Jesus means that his work, God's complete saving work, is not finished until he ascends to the Father. He must return back to the Father, and he must send the Spirit. Let's dig deeper into those truths. Turn a few, chapter, a few chapters back to John chapter 14. We're going to start with verse 1. Let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and will take you to myself, that where I am you may be also. Jesus has just told the disciples in chapter 13, verse 33, that where he is going, they can't come. And he has just told Peter in chapter 13, verse 36, that where he is going, he can't follow now, but will follow him afterward. The idea that they won't be able to follow him troubles the disciples. And Jesus encourages them in their despair. He exhorts them to believe in God and to believe in him. He reminds them that he is going to prepare a place for them. And he further encourages them, promising to come again and to take them to himself. Notice in verse 3 that he isn't taking them to a place. He will take them to himself. He has to leave them so that he can take them to himself. After he ascends, he will be their comfort. So he must ascend to the Father. And he must send the Spirit, the Helper, the Comforter. Look further down in chapter 14, verse 15. If you love me, you will keep my commandments, and I will ask the Father, and he will give you another helper to be with you forever, even the Spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive, because it neither sees him nor knows him. You know him, for he dwells with you and will be in you. Jesus promises that those who love him will seek to keep his commandments. And he will ask the Father to give them another helper as they seek to keep his commandments. Jesus will ask the Father to give them a helper. The Father has to give the disciples the helper. That helper is his spirit. He is the spirit of truth. The spirit cannot be received. The Spirit cannot be seen, and the Spirit cannot be known by the world either. The Spirit isn't something men can grab hold of or manipulate themselves. The Spirit must be given. And Jesus says that the disciples know the Spirit. They know him because he dwells with them, and he promises that the Spirit will be in them. Let's, just, let's look just a little more in chapter 14. Look at verses 25 through 29. 
These things I have spoken to you while I'm still with you. But the Helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I have said to you. Peace I leave with you. My peace I give to you. Not as the world gives do I give to you. Let not your hearts be troubled. Neither let them be afraid. You heard me say to you, I am going away and I will come to you. If you love me, you would have rejoiced because I am going to the Father. For the Father is greater than I. And now I have told you before it takes place so that when it does take place, you may believe. Jesus, Jesus again is trying to head off their discouragement. He is instructing them about the things that will take place after he leaves them. He is instructing about things that will take place after he ascends to the Father. The Spirit, who will be sent by the Father in Jesus' name, will teach them all things. The Spirit will cause them to remember the things Jesus has spoken to them throughout his earthly ministry. He tells them not to be troubled by his leaving. He tells them not to be afraid because of his leaving. Instead, they should rejoice. He is leaving them to go to the Father. And this should not be a cause for despair, but a cause for rejoicing. And because he has told them these things before they happen, they should believe when they do happen. You don't have to turn there, but chapter 16, Jesus encourages them further. He tells the disciples more about the work of the Holy Spirit. He will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. He will guide the disciples of Jesus in all truth. He will speak on the authority of the Father and the Son. He will declare to the disciples the things to come. He will glorify the Son. So for Jesus to complete his work, he must return back to the Father, and he must send the Spirit. As we return back to chapter 20, verse 17, Jesus gives Mary the privilege of announcing to the disciples, his brothers, that he is ascending to my Father and your Father, to my God and your God. Throughout the Gospel of John, Jesus refers to the Father as my Father or my God. After his death and resurrection, Jesus instructs the disciples to lay hold of his Father as their own Father. By his death and resurrection, those who love him are his brothers and sisters. The disciples and Mary and all those who love him and believe in him are now his siblings. In verse 18, we see that Mary obeys Jesus' instructions. Mary Magdalene went and announced to the disciples, I have seen the Lord, and that he had said these things to her. At the beginning of the chapter, Mary doesn't know where her Lord's body was laying. Now she has seen him. Now she has embraced him. Now she knows that he is about to return to his Father in heaven. Her Lord was dead, but now he is alive. And his Father is now her Father. She responds in joy by sharing this good news to her brothers in Christ. Mary doesn't need to weep anymore because her Lord has spoken to her. Mary doesn't need to weep anymore because her Lord has revealed himself to her. And Mary doesn't need to weep anymore because her Lord has told her where he is going. Jesus has comforted Mary. So how should we respond to the truths revealed in this passage? 
friends here this afternoon who do not acknowledge Jesus as Lord, who do not acknowledge him as the Son of God, who do not acknowledge him as the King of the universe. Jesus came from God to live among us and to die for us so that we might have life in his name. That's the whole point of John's gospel. Jesus proved himself to be sent from God, the Father. He demonstrated his omniscience by knowing the hearts and thoughts of men. He demonstrated his power over creation and numerous signs and miracles, turning water to wine, healing blind people, helping people walk. He miraculously fed 5,000 people. He walked on water. He raised to life a man who had been dead and buried for four days, Lazarus. And most importantly, he himself rose from the dead. Men put him to death because he did all these things. But death in the grave could not hold him, just as he had promised. He died for the sins of mankind. The just died for the unjust, that he might bring us to God. John 3.16 is perhaps the best-known passage of Scripture throughout the world and throughout history. It is a beautiful, one-sentence summary of the gospel. But its context perhaps is not so well known. The writer of the gospel of John includes this magnificent statement right after, or as part of the conversation Jesus has with Nicodemus, a Pharisee and a ruler among the Jewish people. Jesus declares that no one can see the kingdom of God without being born again which is a work of the Spirit. He then explains how he has fulfilled the Old Testament promises of the Messiah and the Son of Man in verses 13 through 18. So listen to John 3, 6, John 3, 13 through 18. No one has ascended into heaven except he who descended from heaven, the Son of Man. And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up that, whatever, that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already, because he has not believed in the name of the only son of God. That is the context of John 3.16. God did not send his son to condemn the world. God sent his son into the world in order that it might be saved through the son. Those who do not believe in the son of God are condemned already. But those who believe in him shall have eternal life. They shall not perish because they believe in him. So friends, you should believe in him because he was lifted up. He was lifted up on a cross and killed you should believe in him because his tomb is empty. He's not there anymore. You should believe in him because he rose from the dead. You should believe in him because he ascended back to his father and sits at his right hand. This is the good news of Christ and him crucified, risen, and ascended. This good news and its promise of eternal life is a lot to take in. And as we've seen, even those who were with Jesus and who had witnessed his miracles had trouble understanding and remembering what he had taught. 
Nicodemus had trouble believing that Jesus was the promised Messiah. The disciples did not immediately understand that he was risen from the dead when they saw the empty tomb. Mary was looking for the body of her Lord, not for him to have risen from the grave, despite his promise that he would indeed rise from the grave. If this message is compelling to you or you want to understand more about this good news, the best way to learn more is to talk to me, Adam. I was going to say our elders, but right now it's just me and him. Uh, or any member of this church. We are all familiar with this gospel. We love to, to share this gospel with others. And then join us or a local church in your area that elaborates this good news each week. Gather with a body of believers who celebrate this good news each week. Learn from those who confess Jesus as Lord and believe that God raised him from the dead. Why that is our greatest joy and greatest comfort. The church, again, is eager to share this good news with you. Dear saints, my brothers and sisters in Christ, how can we respond to the good news of Christ raised and enthroned? In hard circumstances, we can weep, knowing that God is sovereignly and lovingly in control of our lives. We can weep without sin. Yet in that grief, we should seek Christ and not seek to control our circumstances. We should avoid seeking counselors who tell us what we want to hear. Instead, we should seek counselors that tell us what we need to hear. Persist in seeking Christ. In her weeping, Mary is persistent in seeking the Lord. We must be persistent in seeking Him in our trials and distresses. Do we go to him in prayer at the do, you, do we go to him to prayer in the start of our distress? Or do we only go to him when we've exhausted all other means? Our friends, our podcast, our music, our gurus, I know that's a weird word. Um, do we seek him? Do we go to his word? Do we seek godly counsel? We must persist in seeking him. And cling to Christ, lay hold of him, make him your steady anchor. Since he is ascended and enthroned, we can cling to him. More precisely, we are united to him through the Spirit. The promises of remembrance, help, and comfort are available to us because we are united to him. Share this good news with your friends, your neighbors, with all those around you. Mary was given the privilege of announcing Jesus' resurrection and ascension to the disciples. We have been given the mission to declare the gospel no matter our background. Be obedient and be courageous. Declare Christ crucified, resurrected, and ascended with love and patience. Be comforted by the resurrection and ascension of Christ. We know where he is and what he is doing and what he will do. Offer comfort to others with the good news of the gospel of Christ. Remind them where he is, what he is doing, and what he will do. Like the disciples and Mary, we are prone to forget these truths. We can forget where Jesus is. We can forget what he's doing. We can forget what he will do. 
we can be comforted because of where he is. We can be comforted because of what he's doing. We can be comforted because of what he will do. Jesus Christ is at the Father's right hand. Christ is ruling his kingdom and interceding on our behalf. Christ will return to judge the living and the dead. Christ will put an end to sin and death. Christ will reign forever. I began this message mentioning the Heidelberg Catechism. I will conclude with it as well. Questions 45 through 49 discuss the benefits of Christ's resurrection and his ascension to heaven. Question 45 asks, how does Christ's resurrection benefit us? The answer, first, by his resurrection, he has overcome death so that he might make us share in the righteousness he won for us by his death. Second, by his power, we too are already now resurrected to a new life. Third, Christ's resurrection is a guarantee of our glorious resurrection. Question 46 asks, what do you mean by saying he ascended to heaven? The answer, that Christ, while his disciples watched, was lifted up from the earth to heaven and will be there for our good until he comes again to judge the living and the dead. And then question 47, but isn't Christ with us until the end of the world as he promised us? Answer, Christ is truly human and truly God. In his human nature, Christ is not now on earth, but his divinity, majesty, grace, and spirit. He is not absent from us for a moment. I'm going to skip question 48 because it primarily addresses an important doctrinal question about Christ's two natures. There could be an entire sermon about that or multiple sermons. So moving to question 49, how does Christ's ascension to heaven benefit us? Answer, first, he pleads our cause in heaven in the presence of his Father. Second, we have our own flesh in heaven a guarantee that Christ our head will take us, his members, to himself in heaven. Third, he sends a spirit to us on earth as a further guarantee. By the spirit's power, we make the goal of our lives not earthly things, but the things above where Christ is sitting at God's right hand. And then circling back to question one, what is your only comfort in life and in death? Here's the answer that I am not my own, but belong body and soul, in life and in death, to my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. He has fully paid for all my sins with his precious blood and has set me free from the tyranny of the devil. He also watches over me in such a way that not a hair can fall from my head without the will of my Father in heaven. In fact, all things must work together for my salvation. Because I belong to him, Christ, by his Holy Spirit, assures me of eternal life and makes me wholeheartedly willing and ready from now on to live for him. This is true for Mary. This is true for us. Jesus Christ is our only comfort in life and death. Jesus Christ was raised and enthroned, so believe in him for eternal life. Please pray with me.